look at such key events as the effects of World War II and the South's longstanding efforts to attract business investment. He'll chart the breathtaking course of the 20th century and examine what survives and what has been lost in the, in the rush toward prosperity and growth. This lecture is part of the VHS's uh, Reynolds Business History Center, which is a fairly new component in our program and is dear to the heart of our speaker. He, in fact, is the newly appointed president-elect and CEO-elect of the VHS, Dr. Paul Levengood. Paul did his undergraduate work at Davidson College and earned his PhD at Rice University. After completing a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of North Carolina, he came to the VHS in 2000. Very soon after I hired him <clears throat> as managing editor of the Virginia Magazine, I knew he'd be a success, uh, whatever he uh, set his uh, sights on. He's consistently shown initiative, creativity, and leadership, and plus he's a lot of fun to have around as long as you're not the um, target of his wicked sense of humor. I'm happy to say that our Board of Trustees, when presented with the opportunity, had the good sense to hire him as the new president of the VHS. Please give a warm welcome to Paul Levengood, who will speak to us on the subject, From Cotton Fields to Skyscrapers, The Transformation of the South in the 20th Century. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much, Nelson, for that very kind introduction. And I want to take the opportunity to thank uh, the extended VHS family, my staff colleagues, and all of you here in this room for um, the warm wishes and the thoughtfulness that so many of you have extended to me over the last two months. It's been just overwhelming. Now, I have to start off with a confession. This title, which I think is so clever, <laughs> is kind of plagiarized. So I have to lead off by thanking David Goldfield, who is a very well-known Southern historian who wrote a book called Cotton Fields and Skyscrapers. And I thought it was so great that I just kind of had to pinch it, but at least now I've admitted it, I've confessed my sin, and I trust that today's lecture will give me absolution from all of you. So on to my topic. I'm attracted to the study of the South in the 20th century for several reasons. But primary among them is the dizzying change that Nelson pointed to that took place here in that century, which it seems amazing to say is now eight years in our rearview mirror. I first came to see this change in the late 1980s as an undergraduate at Davidson College, which when I arrived was in a quaint little college town about 15 miles north of Charlotte. By the time I left, four years later, my parents were happy to see, the town of Davidson was well on its way to starring in a motion picture that might be titled Charlotte, the Blob That Ate Mecklenburg County. <laughs> As a Philadelphian, I had grown up witness to a decades-long debate over the momentous question of whether a building ought to be allowed higher than William Penn's hat on the statue that surmounts City Hall. This is rather a quaint argument, it seems to me, at this point. So I was wowed by a place like Charlotte, where the pace of change was just incredible. It seemed to me that history was literally being made before my very eyes. And here I was, going to college, not just in this place of incredible physical change, 
but I was going to college with the youngest child of Strom Thurmond. <laughs> so here I am, product of a nice Philadelphia Quaker school, going to college with the son of a man who ran for president in 1948 as a segregationist Dixiecrat and was then still serving in the Senate, although as a Gads Republican. Now, surely his daddy did not see this whole thing coming. And where else could I have seen these great stories in the 20th century unfold but here in the South? Observers far more astute than me have opined that the South saw more change in the 20th century than in every other century since Europeans first set up shop 50 miles or so from here in 1607. I would like to explore that change with you here today. So let's begin by setting the scene. Henry Grady, who was editor of the Atlanta Constitution, addressed the Bay State Club of Boston in 1889. And here were some of his remarks. I attended a funeral once in Pickens County in my state. This funeral was peculiarly sad. They buried him in the midst of a marble quarry. They cut through solid marble to make his grave, and yet a little tombstone they put above him was from Vermont. They buried him in the heart of a pine forest, and yet the pine coffin was imported from Cincinnati. They buried him within touch of an iron mine, and yet the nails in his coffin and the iron in the shovel that dug his grave were imported from Pittsburgh. They buried him by the side of the best sheep grazing country on earth, and yet the wool in the coffin bands and the coffin bands themselves were brought from the north. The south didn't furnish a thing on, on earth for that funeral, but the corpse and the hole in the ground. There they put him away, and the clods rattled down on his coffin, and they buried him in a New York coat and a Boston pair of shoes and a pair of breeches from Chicago and a shirt from Cincinnati, leaving him nothing to carry into the next world with him to remind him of the country in which he lived and for which he fought for four years, but the chill of blood in his veins and the marrow in his bones. With Grady's stark vignette of an underdeveloped region in our minds, permit me an indulgence, if you will. Let's take a flight of fancy for a moment. Imagine that we could have taken flight in 1900 and gone on an aerial tour of the South. What would we have seen? Well, in many ways, the scene would have been much the same if you had been able to make the same flight in 1850. Coming ashore from the Atlantic Ocean, we would have encountered vast stretches of farmland split by broad rivers. We would have seen few concentrated pockets of settlement without swooping quite low to the ground. This region was far different from the densely populated Northeast. In fact, after passing over Richmond, our flight south would only infrequently be interrupted by cities of any size, like the Piedmont Carolina textile towns Charlotte and Greensboro and tobacco-scented Durham. And at night, we would have been consumed by the inky darkness. Electricity would, have, would be decades in coming to some parts of the South. South Carolina would seem like a virtually unending blanket of field and forest that ended with the distinct urban settlement nestled at the spot where the Ashley and Cooper Rivers come together to form the Atlantic Ocean. Or so Charleston friends would have you believe. <laughs> well, heading back inland again on our aerial odyssey, we would have seen vast fields of white that stretched to the horizon across much of South Carolina and into central Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. 
In 1900, King Cotton still ruled over much of the South, and the lives of its inhabitants moved in rhythm with the cycles of its cultivation, seeding, chopping, picking, ginning. And even from the air, we might have seen that most of those laboring in those large fields were black. Shifting the flight path slightly, we could have swooped over the northern part of Georgia that Grady mentioned and had to swerve for the first time to avoid buildings over eight stories tall as we surveyed bustling Atlanta with its humming downtown district, the commercial heart of the region. Continuing in a northerly direction, we would have come for the first time to higher elevations as our flight path took us through the Appalachian Mountains, which form a rocky spine through the middle of the region. Here, the only signifiers that we were in the 20th century would have been the railroads that had penetrated into regions once thought too remote. These were built not to unlock the isolated lives of mountaineers little changed since before the Civil War, but to get at the rich coal fields of Appalachia and take that black gold to the fuel-hungry factories of the north. Descending out of the mountains across the Cumberland Plateau and into the Great Valley of the Mississippi, we could have seen much the same pattern as on the eastern side of the Appalachians. Vast stretches of cropland and forest cut by broad rivers with only a few sizable settlements scattered along them. Louisville, Nashville, Birmingham. As we glide toward the muddy Mississippi, we might have glimpsed bustling wharves and enormous numbers of boats packed with the produce of much of the land we have traversed. Cotton, tobacco, wheat, hogs, hemp, and on and on. At Memphis, we could follow the course of the father of waters south, passing through some of the most fertile agricultural land on earth. The great Yazoo Mississippi Delta, which encompasses a swath of Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. If anything, the faces we might have caught sight of in the cotton fields or in the dusty crossroad towns were likely to be black. This region of the South has long been the most heavily African-American, with vast numbers toiling on land owned by a handful of whites. We might even have caught a glimpse of the homes of these sharecroppers, dilapidated but proud. The difference between 1850 and 1900 would have been difficult to distinguish, even were we not aloft. Proceeding down the Mississippi, we would have come to the great entrepot of the interior, that least southern of southern cities, New Orleans. Coming in low enough, we might have heard the polyglot cacophony of languages and accents that made up this gumbo pot on the edge of the south. French, Irish, African, Caribbean, all these added to the rich mixture of life. And if we listened carefully enough, perhaps as we swept over the tin roofs of the Storyville neighborhood, we might have heard the jubilant first notes of one of the South's greatest contributions to world culture, jazz. From New Orleans, we could turn either east or west on our southern tour to go along the Gulf. To the east lay the isolated small cities of Biloxi and Mobile, former French colonial outposts that served the interior regions of Mississippi and Alabama as cotton shipping centers. East of Mobile, we would discover what is largely a dark, empty peninsula. Fleeing from mosquitoes the size of seagulls, we could leave Florida to the developers that were just beginning to tackle its wilderness and zoom across the Gulf again until we reached the shores of Texas. If our flight would have taken place on September 8th of the year of our tour, 1900, we might have just seen the deadliest storm in U.S. history sweep the thriving port of city of Galveston basically off the map killing 6,000 souls. Inland, we would have seen Houston sitting on the prairie, 
poised to overtake its unfortunate rival Galveston for preeminence among Texas cities. A development made largely possible by the seas of underground liquid carbon that would soon be sucked from the earth and make eastern Texas into one large oil-producing and refining region. West across the prairie, we would have come to the end of our voyage at the Balcones Escarpment west of Austin. Beyond that, to use an ancient term, be dragons. Well, Westerners or something like that, but they're not part of our scope, so we're going to ignore them. Okay, so this is our geographic tour. What is the South? What has it been? How do we define it? Is it simply a geographical region, or is it a cultural one, or is it both? There's some interesting theories. I'll give you my first. One of my favorites is my friend Dave's. Dave's a good old Georgia boy, and um, he swears that the real South begins when you can walk into a restaurant and order tea, never say iced tea, of course, and have it delivered to you so sweet that a spoon will stand up by itself in the glass. Okay, so there's one theory. Another one. Southern historian U.B. Phillips once began a seminal work on the region by saying, let us begin by discussing the weather. And he meant that climate made cotton cultivation and thus slavery possible. But on a prosaic level and on a hot day like this in July, we can all agree that the weather is something that bonds the South together. A 20th century twist on weather and climate can be seen in this slide. Anyone read that? <laughs> the kudzu frontier, if you will. And look how that... Look how that pretty neatly maps the South right there. Did you know that kudzu is actually a Japanese relative newcomer to the South? It's introduced as an erosion control crop at the 1876 World's Fair in my native city of Philadelphia. And we then very graciously gave it to you down here. <laughs> so it's probably the longest running successful Japanese import in the South, long before Toyota or Honda built assembly plants here. So anyhow, kudzu, and I just couldn't resist. I just have, <laughs> kudzu, kudzu can look beautiful, striking, but kudzu can get you if you're not careful. <laughs> when they say no parking, they meant no parking. Well, here's another definition. And my apologies to John Shelton Reed, who I, again, shamelessly lifted this from. Anyone read what that says? States mentioned in country music lyrics. So this takes into account the region's rich musical heritage. Well, as you gathered from our little imaginary tour over the South, circa 1900, my working definition of the South is actually pretty boring. It's nothing as exciting as country music or kudzu. It's what historians call the Confederacy plus one. In other words, the 11 states of the Confederacy plus Kentucky, which had a star on the flag, but not Maryland, which also had a star. So here's our setting. At the beginning of the 20th century, the South looked very different in many ways than it than did the rest of the nation. Many of those ways were bad. Even as late as 1940, Southern per capita incomes were less than half the national average. The average white child attended school for fewer than three months per year, and black children even less. Life expectancy and infant mortality levels were both atrocious, as were late rates of literacy. In 1900, 15% of Southerners lived in cities, and by cities I mean places of 2,500 people or more. And this was significant growth from just 40 years before. The biggest city was New Orleans, 
with a population of just short of 300,000, which was only good enough to rank it 12th nationally. Compare that with New York's population in 1900 of 3.5 million. Other cities were growing, but they were relative newcomers on the southern urban scene. Cities like Birmingham, which was not even born until 1871, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, and they all had something in common. Unlike traditional interior cities, or excuse me, unlike traditional cities on the coast or on rivers, these interior cities were created purely by human means and reflected the spread of cotton into interior regions and the growing importance of railroad transportation. And these new cities were all about business. Led by business leaders, or boosters, of whom Henry Grady is only the most famous example, because every city had them, in an in an effort to catch up with the cities of the North and Midwest, these boosters championed economic growth and industrialization. Steel mills in Birmingham, textile mills in the cities and towns of the Carolina Piedmont, railroads, these were all signifiers to this group of progress. To attract business, these cities in the 1890s had begun to acquire some of the signs of urban progress, things like sewers, streetcars, electric lights, etc., but they were not seen as progressive attempts to lift the population. These were calling cards. They knew that this is the, these were the kind of things that a business wanted to see if it was going to relocate to a city. The rapid growth of these cities and the subsequent dislocation gave rise to a white reaction that included a host of segregation measures that excluded African Americans from theaters, restaurants, and hotels, and consigned them to certain sections of public transportation. Jim Crow was not a child of the traditional rural South. He came of age in the tumult of the urban South, the turn of the 20th century. The political face of Jim Crow, disfranchisement, was almost complete by 1900, with the creation of poll taxes, grandfather clauses, literacy tests, and just plain intimidation. And though blacks were excluded from electoral contests, they became the predominant issue that drove Southern politics. There was early in the 20th century a split between what we might call a businessman's progressivism, those boosters I was talking about, which was centered in the cities, obviously, and called for good government, the education of the white workforce, and public health efforts to lift the pall of infant mortality and chronic disease, and the split between those and the infamous southern demagogues of the 19-teens and 20s. The latter were men like the white chief, James Vardaman, and Theodore Bilbo of Mississippi, Pitchfork Ben Tillman and Cole Bleas in South Carolina, Jeff Davis in Arkansas, and Tom Watson in Georgia, not to be confused with the winner of the 1975 British Open, by the way. <laughs> and sadly, some had started off as legitimate voices of the downtrodden white rural residents of their states, but most came to espouse a politics largely of fear, of negrophobia, and distrust of the immorality of city life. One of their progeny, George Wallace, commented several decades later, you know, I tried to talk about good roads and good schools and all these things that have been part of my career. Nobody listened. And then I began talking about niggers, and they stomped the floor. Tragically, race baiting became a hallmark of Southern politics, and as the Jim Crow system hardened into law, extra-legal violence to enforce the racial order also grew. It's little exaggeration to call the first couple of decades of the 20th century the nadir of Southern race relations. Lynchings were depressingly common in parts of the South, 
perhaps a couple of hundred a year in the 19-teens. These were often carried out for imagined transgressions of the color line, frequently involving alleged sexual assaults by black men on white women. Recent scholarship has revealed that far from occurring on the fringes of society, lynchings were often carried out quite publicly and with the participation of prominent people. In the first couple of decades of the century, most Southerners, black and white, still lived on farms. And they would continue to do so until the 1950s, when the balance between urban and rural began to tip. Southern agriculture in the early 20th century still centered on staple crop production in many areas, especially cotton, tobacco, and sugar. The plantation system survived in a form that resembled the antebellum era more closely than most planters would admit. Though the through, the, through the labor system of sharecropping and the economic mechanisms of debt peonage and the crop lien, croppers, a group that did include large numbers of whites, by the way, lived in a miserable existence that was tied to the land almost as completely as slaves had been. Life expectancy for rural Southerners was somewhere in their 40s, and diseases like pellagra and hookworm remained endemic. The first chink in the armor of the agricultural system came in the 19-teens, when World War I stimulated the national economy and northern factories beckoned with offers of unheard of wages. Poor whites and blacks began to stream out of the South in the beginning of what we've come to call the Great Migration. Between 1910 and 1960, 4.5 million blacks left the South. Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, and then Los Angeles all saw huge numbers of Southerners, black and white, flock to them. With these migrants came Southern food, eventually to be called things like soul food or country food, but also religion and music. One need only think of the great generation of Delta bluesmen who brought their rural music and electrified it in the cities. Robert Johnson begat Muddy Waters, who begat the Rolling Stones, and so on and so on. Not all the Southern economy was tied to agriculture, however. There was a scattering of industrial enterprises at the opening of the 20th century. Prime among these, probably in importance, was textiles. By 1900, textile companies employed at least 100,000 Southerners in Piedmont, Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, and upstate Alabama. Ironically, these companies that relocated south in the 1890s and early 1900s came to the south from the north for the same reason that their heirs would decamp to Mexico or China today. The promise of a low-wage, docile workforce and minimal government interference. Other industrial enterprises largely centered on the extraction of natural resources in the South. Coal mining and lumbering emerged as large-scale industries at the very end of the 19th century. In the 20th, the spread of railroads increased the penetration of these industries deep into Appalachia and the vast pine and hardwood forests there. In 1900, 20% of southern industrial workers were employed in lumbering. Oil was another extractive industry that would prove extremely important to the South. Captain A.F. Lucas, in 1901, had been prowling around for several years to try to find oil in Texas and Louisiana. Well, in 1901, he dug his bit into a salt dome outside of Beaumont, Texas, called Spindletop, and boom, the thing exploded. The pressure from underground blew the rig and the bit that he was drilling with into the air, and the oil age was truly born. Oil was found at an opportune time, of course. 
the automobile was just coming into its own. And when the first Model T rolled off the assembly line in 1908, oil companies found a seemingly unquenchable demand for their product. Soon field after field followed Spindletop around Texas and Louisiana, and oil made that region. It was responsible for a significant amount of Texas's wealth by the 1920s, certainly. And largely through the energy of a remarkable group of business leaders, Houston made itself into a deep water port, although it's 50 miles from the coast. As a result, Houston became the unquestioned center of oil production and refining, the business, as they say down in Texas. And it quickly assumed the role in the, for the world as well. In fact, it's a title it still holds today, and Houston remains the largest city in the South. Despite the wealth created for a few Houstonians or Atlantans or some of these other cities, the vast majority of Southerners in the early 20th century relied on agriculture for their livelihood, and that livelihood was meager indeed. So glaring were the distinctions between the South and the rest of the nation that in the midst of the Great Depression, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt would declare the region the nation's number one economic problem. Roosevelt's concern for the state of the South had several roots. Conventional wisdom says that his political dependence on the solid democratic South, which was an absolute monolithic reality in political terms, caused him, caused him to bring federal resources to bear on Southern problems. And this was no doubt true. But FDR had also come to see the South as his second home. In the time he spent in Warm Springs, Georgia, after his affliction with polio, he came to deeply care for the region and its people. Although in many ways the economic cataclysm of the Great Depression hit the South a glancing blow, after all, when you have little, you have little to lose. But even so, the federal government took FDR's call to heart in bringing New Deal resources to bear on the region. The South was the beneficiary of the attention of all the alphabet soup agencies you can think of, WPA, PWA, CCC, etc., etc., etc. In cities like Houston, local leaders eschewed many of the make-work projects like ditch digging and instead used federal funds to pave roads, build airports, replace slums, and otherwise improve local infrastructure. It was an economic development project. And the southern powers that be also were able to reach an unspoken agreement with Washington that local racial moors would take precedence over federal regulations. So relief payments were handled locally. No surprise here. Whites got much more, sometimes double. The South was also the location of one of the New Deal's most ambitious schemes, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA which was designed to alleviate poverty and end flooding problems through harnessing the Tennessee and its tributary rivers. This enormous project built dams and power stations in a huge area that included parts of eight southern states. But the New Deal program that had the most profound impact on the course of southern history was one that directly addressed the fundamental problems the region's agriculture. The Agricultural Ad Adjustment Act, or AAA, sought to eliminate overproduction, and boost the prices of crops, including cotton and tobacco, by granting funds directly to farmers who ceased producing them. The AAA took 10.5 million acres of cotton out of production in 1933 alone. With payments coming from Washington, many planters had little need for laborers and evicted hundreds of thousands of sharecroppers from their land. Although the dislocation and misery of the AAA was real for many Southerners, it had an unintended long-term positive result. It weaned the South off its traditional dependence on plantation staple crop agriculture 
and ended some of the worst coercive labor practices. This was a vitally important step in the diversification of the Southern economy that was in the offing. The Roosevelt administration's special interest in the welfare of the South moved seamlessly from the Depression into the war emergency that began about, eight, about 1940. The federal government spent lavishly in the construction of new defense plants, military bases, and in contracts awarded to Southern businesses. This was the real economic engineering of the government at work, and World War II would prove the watershed in the history of the South in the 20th century, and in many ways its entire history. For a region that was largely devoid of industry, smokestacks grew like the cotton plants they symbolically replaced. All aspects of war production were represented in the South. Just down the peninsula from here, Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company produced dozens of warships for the war, including seven aircraft carriers. Though Newport News had long been a shipbuilding center, other less experienced southern localities also became important wartime ship producers. Wilmington, North Carolina, Jacksonville, Florida, Tampa, Pascagoula, Mississippi, Beaumont, Texas, Houston, and others. The huge influx of rural dwellers to urban centers for this type of work, ship work or what have you, overwhelmed local resources. Shipyard workers in Mobile, for example, found housing so scarce that they resorted to time-sharing beds with colleagues from other work shifts. So one would get off the night shift, and the day shift person would get out of bed, that night shift person would get into bed, and they would rotate that around all three shifts during the day. Similarly, aircraft producing uh, found a home in the South in wartime. Consolidated built Liberator bombers in Fort Worth. Bell Aircraft built B-29s in Marietta, Georgia, outside Atlanta. North American built P-51 Mustangs in Dallas. And Volte built dive bombers in Nashville. Munitions of all types were also produced in all southern states, both in new federally financed war plants and in retooled existing facilities. And women and African Americans helped make up for the manpower shortage as the war dragged on and as white men who had been the only ones allowed in skilled positions became increasingly scarce. There was some resistance to this, and again, southern employers chose to ignore federal dicta dictates that war workers doing the same work be paid equally, regardless of race. But for both women and African Americans, this was a foot in the door of opportunity and of prosperity. The end of World War II brought with it a cessation of some of the intense industrial activities that had taken place in the previous five years. However, the massive federal investment, over $17 billion worth in the region, and that's the 1940s dollars, left a legacy in the region that would prove long-lasting. The petroleum industry in Houston is a great example of this. Federal funds built enormous plants to produce everything from aviation gasoline to synthetic rubber and then, and then had the oil companies run these facilities. After the war, the federal government couldn't see itself in the oil business and so sold these, these plants that, they had built, that the government had built to the oil companies for often pennies on the dollar. And those plants were turned to meet the post-war demand for petrochemicals. You just think of the memorable line from The Graduate, of course. I want to say just one word to you, just one word. Plastics. Modern Houston is largely built on plastics. The Great Depression and World War II also served as a lesson for Southern business and political leaders that the region could be the beneficiary of federal funds without in undue interference in local racial and social norms, or at least they thought that was the lesson. Ironically, as white Southerners came to see the federal government as a useful economic partner, 
black Southerners began to see Washington as a potential ally. During the war, the Supreme Court had decided a suit brought by a black Houston dentist, Lonnie Smith, in the case Smith v. Allwright, that declared the white primary unconstitutional, which, of course, in the South was very significant, as the Democratic Party was the only party with any power. Similarly, the war produced Sweat v. Painter, which was a key school desegregation case brought against the law school of the University of Texas and was a precursor to Brown v. Board. In the immediate aftermath of the war, President Truman desegregated the armed forces, largely in recognition of the role played by African-American soldiers, sailors, and Marines. Black Southerners saw the hypocrisy of fighting the freedom of, for freedom abroad while being second-class citizens at home. And a new spirit emerged from the war years. It was nurtured in black churches and in organizations like the NAACP and the Congress of Racial Equality. And this spirit matured into the quiet assertiveness that marked what would come to be called the Civil Rights Movement. After early successes in the courts, Smith v. Allwright and Sweat v. Painter, the Brown decision of 1954 opened a floodgate of black activism and of white reaction. In the wake of Brown came the full maturing of the civil rights movement, a truly southern grassroots social revolution. Nurtured in the black church and led by sons and daughters of the South, the push for an end to segregation, for voting rights, and for economic justice has rightly been called the Second American Revolution. In the face of hostility and violence for many, Southern African Americans persuaded the nation as a whole of the justice of their cause. And in the end, most Southern white leaders came to understand that they could not simply thumb their noses at the rest of the nation and insist on being left alone to handle their Negro problem. In this, business leaders ended up playing a significant role. Leaders in southern cities often led the way in white accommodation to the civil rights movement by putting pressure on politicians to comply with desegregation and not risk disrupting commerce or giving the region a public relations black eye. Atlanta Mayor Ivan Allen famously declared that his city was, quote, too busy to hate. In other words, we're too busy making money to worry about these things. And frankly, there was more at stake than ever before in post-World War II South. The South was really starting to prosper. Thanks to some of that investment I mentioned, uh, the South economy was growing in the 50s. Beginning in the 1930s, programs like Mississippi's Balance Agriculture with Industry, the BAWI program, and continuing in the post-war era with things like Research Triangle Park in North Carolina, Southern states had more fully heeded Henry Grady's call and been successful at attracting industry and commerce to the region. This trend skyrocketed during the war and continued in the 50s and 60s. Atlanta, Charlotte, Houston, Orlando, and other southern cities topped lists of the fastest-growing metropolises in the nation, forming part of what pundits came to call the Sun Belt. This growth was the result of southerners migrating to cities and also welcoming large numbers of newcomers to the region. As a region, the South's economy went from relatively stagnant to become the fastest growing in the nation in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. People flocked to the South in search of jobs, but also in search of a certain lifestyle as well. The South's low-density cities and new suburbs combined with a mild climate to attract those in search of recreational opportunities unavailable to them in Detroit or Buffalo or Cleveland. The balmy southern climate, and if you've spent time outside this week, balmy is a nice word for it, 
The climate was, of course, made bearable for those from the snow belt only with the post-war spread of air conditioning in the South. The South was air conditioned at a rate that was more than double the national average, and I think we all know why. In fact, it's many ways it's very hard to imagine the South in the form we know it today without Willis Carrier's blessed invention. Transportation, too, played its part in changing the face of the South, its economy, and its people. The creation of farm-to-market roads in the New Deal and then the interstate highway system in the 1950s connected the South with the nation as never before. Dallas, Atlanta, and Charlotte also became among the most important airport hubs in the nation, and this was a concerted effort by local businessmen and politicians. It's one of my favorite little things about the Atlanta airport. They had a contest several years ago to come up with a new tourism slogan, and they asked people to write in from across Atlanta. And one of the suggestions, and I think this is great, Atlanta, because you'd have to change planes here anyway. <laughs> well, one of the most notable developments of the second half of the 20th century was the tremendous change in the southern political landscape. You remember me talking about early 20th century politics, but in 1960, Republicans held only 3% of all seats in southern lower legislative houses and 2% in upper houses. The real tipping point came in 1964 with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and a feeling among many white Southerners that the Democratic Party had abandoned them. Barry Goldwater only won five states in the 1964 presidential election, but besides his home state of Arizona, the other four were all in the Deep South, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and South Carolina. So those states that were the most stalwart opponents of integration, and that was one of Barry Goldwater's planks. Richard Nixon's southern strategy of coded racial language and an emphasis on law and order won him much of the South in 1968, and this trend accelerated in 1972 and beyond. The South voted in numbers for native son Jimmy Carter in 1976, but only four states went for Southerner Bill Clinton in 1992 and 96. Fewer went for Al Gore. It's safe to say that the South has gone from being the most dependable Democratic voting bloc, the old yellow dog Democrats, in presidential elections to the very most Republican. To be fair, local and statewide races show more competition between parties, and Virginia is one of the most notable examples of that, having had between 1966 and the end of the century an equal number of Democrats and Republicans in the governor's mansion. And the South can be proud, too, of its recent record in electing African Americans to office, from governor in Virginia to a host of local officials. In a host of ways, economic, social, political, demographic, at century's end, the extent of Southern transformation was dramatic. Two out of three Southerners had become urban folk, and most rural Southerners were working in industry anyway, not on the land. But the fossil remains of the Old South can still be seen as concentrations of poor, rural, mostly black Southerners remain. In any case, now the shadow of the plantation is giving way to the light of the Sun Belt. The South may still be on the bottom of the socioeconomic heap, but the gap between top and bottom is much, much narrower than it used to be. In a few respects, South and non-South have traded places. For instance, the Southern birth rate, which historically was much, much higher than the national average, is now lower than the national average. Consequently, those who view the South in primarily economic terms are likely to believe that the region is disappearing. You hear a lot of talk about this. 
Southern characteristics that simply revealed the South was a poor rural region are more and more confined to pockets of poverty within the region. Or more accurately, perhaps, the statistics increasingly reflect the presence of air-conditioned pockets of affluence, particularly in Texas, Florida, Virginia, and a few metropolitan areas elsewhere. If we map the South with the same criteria people used even 50 years ago, what we get these days looks a little more like Swiss cheese than a coherent geographical region. And even as the South looks more and more like the rest of the country, think shopping centers and freeways and cookie-cutter houses, the rest of the South, uh, the rest of the U.S. also looks a bit more like the South. Think evangelical Christianity and political conservatism and uh, NASCAR. <laughs> but make no mistake, the South has not been homogenized out of existence. We all know it's still very much alive. It's a different South, to be sure, than the South in 1900. And it's a more just and even decent South, but it's still the South. Just ask a Southerner, even if he or she was born in Pennsylvania, <laughs> or in Guadalajara, or in Saigon. So let's end with a sequel to the Henry Grady story that I started with. Unlike the morbid tone of the original, perhaps fanciful anecdote, I will not place our proverbial Southerner six feet under the North Georgia hills. No, I will place her in altogether better circumstances. So let's imagine this Southern woman who received a first-class education at the University of Virginia, works at a state-of-the-art facility at the Research Triangle Park in North Carolina, developing drugs to cure diseases that are the scourge of the world, but no longer her own region. She commutes to work every day in a BMW manufactured in South Carolina. Now let's imagine the same woman returns to a hotel room in Shanghai, where she's attending an international pharmaceutical conference. She kicks off her shoes and settles down to relax. She opens a Coca-Cola, based in Atlanta, and tunes into CNN International, based in Atlanta. And let's say that she also comes, get, becomes tired of the local fare and has a hankering for another taste of home. On her Dell laptop, made by a computer based in, company based in Austin, she logs onto the website of her favorite barbecue place, John Big Daddy Bishop's Dreamland in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Well, the wonders of technology and the efforts of Memphis-based Federal Express mean that she could soon be enjoying a slab of ribs while she overlooks the Yangtze River. And did I mention that this proverbial but completely possible Southerner is an African-American? The great-granddaughter of slaves? Well, she could be. If this seems impossible, then you have truly missed the extraordinary story of the South in the 20th century, from cotton fields to skyscrapers and all that both entail. <laughs>